Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have given to us your word to point us to Christ Jesus as it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have given us the sacraments. We thank you for baptism through which we are sprinkled with the blood of Christ and your spirit is poured out upon us. And we thank you for the Lord's Supper where we get to eat and drink the flesh and blood of Christ, this spiritual food and spiritual drink. Oh, Father, we thank you for these gifts of grace you've given to us, for through them you make us your people, you cleanse us from sin, you make us faithful disciples, and through these same means we will go forth and disciple the nations. So, Father, help us to understand these gifts you have given to us. For Christ's sake, in his name we pray. Amen. As I said, this morning we are going to get into our Reformation time machine and travel back 500 years. Uh, this year, 2017, is considered the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so Protestants throughout the world are uh, acknowledging this and celebrating it in various ways. Uh, the year 2017 is considered the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation because in, 20, in 1517... In the year 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. But while those 95 theses challenged a number of corruptions that Luther wanted to address in the church, a lot of historians think that the Reformation truly began a couple years later with Luther's so-called tower experience in 1519. So maybe Reformation 500 should really happen in 2019. Luther's tower experience is often considered his conversion to true faith in the gospel, or at least his great breakthrough in terms of his understanding of the scriptures and of the gospel. Uh, as Luther recounts the event, he was in the tower of the Black Cloister uh, in Wittenberg. He was studying Paul's epistle to the Romans, and he was fixated on Romans 1.17, which says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And suddenly, as he was pondering these words, it dawned on Luther, the righteousness of God is not just the standard by which he judges us, but the gift God gives us in Christ. So that in Christ, God makes us righteous. He declares us righteous through his Son. And so God's righteousness doesn't just condemn, God's righteousness saves. And so Luther came to this exegetical insight, and it had profound experiential implications. Indeed, Luther said afterwards, it was as if the gates of paradise were opened. Previously, Luther had said whenever he would come across that phrase, the righteousness of God in Scripture, it would terrify him. It would consume him. He would be struck by it like lightning. It was like a thunderbolt in his heart because he knew that he had fallen short of God's righteous standard. And so what could God's righteousness do but condemn him? He hated the righteousness of God. But after God opened his eyes to see that Christ himself is the righteousness of God, that God's righteousness is his gift of salvation, he says he had peace. His conscience was at rest. He was certain of his salvation. He says that phrase, the righteousness of God, became the sweetest phrase to him in all of Scripture. 
And of course, it was this discovery that drove the work he would do the rest of his life. All of Luther's really famous writings come after this big breakthrough in 1519 as he comes to this precious insight into the book of Romans. And of course, one discovery led to a multitude of other discoveries, particularly about how God works through his word, the Bible as it is read and preached, and how God works through the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper to give us this righteousness, to make us righteous through Christ. See, for Luther, the question was not just how can the righteous God be gracious to sinners? Yes, that was a key question. But the question was also where can the gracious God be found? Where do we find the grace of God? And that's really the question I want us to, to focus on and work through this morning. See, that second question, that second question, uh, where can the gracious God be found? The medieval church of Luther's day gave a very muddled answer to that question, just as they gave a very muddled answer to the first question, how can the righteous God be gracious to sinners? The medieval church certainly pointed people to their own works, and Luther addressed that problem. But the medieval church also pointed people to things like icons and acts of penance and pilgrimages and even relics as sources of blessing. Relics were particularly interesting. Relics were huge. Uh, especially in the late medieval church. There were many medieval churches that became avid collectors of relics. This is how churches would uh, gain prestige and importance. Because a church that, that accumulated relics would become very uh, central because these relics supposedly had spiritual power to bring God's grace near or to drive away evil spirits or even to bring physical healing. Uh, the great reformer John Calvin, who comes basically in the generation right after Luther, wrote a rather interesting and uh, I would say very humorous inventory of relics in which he poked fun at the absurd super superstitions uh, that had gripped people because of these relics. Most of the relics, of course, were frauds, and Calvin pointed that out. Uh, Calvin pointed out that there were enough pieces of Christ's cross scattered throughout Europe to build a ship. <laughs> so certainly not all of these uh, could be legitimate. Uh, there were the swaddling cloths that Jesus was wrapped in as a baby known as the holy diaper. Uh, Calvin said there were so many vials of Mary's milk that she couldn't have produced that much milk even if she had been a cow. Uh, he said that there were Christ's teeth kept in various locations. Uh, John the Baptist, his severed head could be found in four or five different places. Uh, so it was a rather ridiculous situation. And, of course, people would always pay good money to, to get to view or even handle these relics. And any time that church and business are combined in this way, there's always all kinds of corruption. But people did this because they were taught to think that by gaining access to these relics, they were gaining access to God. And that they could actually access God by venerating these relics. Now, the truth is, today, even most Roman Catholics would reject uh, a lot of these relics as frauds. They belong to a bygone age. Thankfully, we've moved past those kinds of superstitions. But the most important thing is, thing is not the fact that most of the relics were fraudulent. It's the argument that Luther and Calvin and the other reformers made against them. That's really the important thing. This is how Calvin put it. He said, the principal vice 
and the beginning of this evil was when Christ ought to have been sought in word and sacrament, but instead the people sought after him in garments, vests, swaddling cloths, and other relics, thus overturning the principal thing. See, Calvin saw the relics as dangerous not only because so many of them were frauds, but because they led people away from the places where they should actually be seeking to meet Christ. People were seeking after Christ in all the wrong places instead of meeting Him in those places where He had promised to be found. Now, I, I know that asking that question, where do we seek God, that seems like kind of a strange question. It seems a bit odd. Where do we seek God? After all, someone might say, isn't God everywhere? And yes, Scripture does affirm that God is omnipresent. You can look at passages like Psalm 139 and see that. But Scripture is also very plain that God is not present in the same way everywhere. And so we're asking not just where is God, but where do we seek and find God's grace? Where do we seek and find God's Christ? See, His presence in the church and the gathering of saints on a Sunday morning is different it is different from the way he is present, say, in the shopping mall or on the golf course. Yes, God is present in McDonald's, but he's not present in McDonald's the same way he promises to be present in the Lord's Supper. He's not promised to be present for you. He's not promised to be present for you at McDonald's in the same way he has promised to be present for you in the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. And so it's not simply where is God found, but where is God's grace found? Where are God's gifts found? Where is God specially present to forgive us and empower us? God's best gift is his self-gift. So where is God's self-giving found? Where is the self-giving love of God put on display? And made available for us to receive and experience. That's really the question that Luther and Calvin wanted to answer. And it's still a crucial question for us today when so many, when so many treat church as optional and view the sacraments as unnecessary. The point of Luther and Calvin is this. God has promised to encounter us in his grace, in the word, and in the sacraments, not in relics and icons or any other human invention, but in his appointed means of word and sacrament. See, God's grace is his favor. God's grace is his gift to us in Christ. And Christ is ours as we receive the word and the sacraments in faith. We come to possess Christ through these means. What does grace sound like? The words of absolution proclaim. The words of scripture read. What does grace feel like? It feels like the waters of baptism being poured out over you. What does grace taste like? It tastes like the bread and wine of the Lord's table. See, preaching is the gospel in audible form. Baptism is the gospel in liquid form. The Lord's Supper is the gospel in edible form. The gospel is sacramental and the sacraments are the gospel. And God makes it clear in his word. He has bound himself to these means. These are the places he has promised to be found. And so these are the places faith must seek after him. Oh sure, God can work when and how he pleases. 
God can work above and beyond and outside these means if He chooses to do so. But we best seek God where He has promised to be found and where our faith will find a firm resting place. You can think of it this way. Jesus gave Himself for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. But how does He give Himself to us today? How are those benefits He won for us on the cross 2,000 years ago distributed to us today? We just read from Matthew 28 where Jesus promises to be with His disciples to the end of the world. But how is He with us? How do we know He's with us? How can I know that what Jesus did, He did for me? Where can I find this God? Where can I find this Christ? Where are God's gifts to be found, His saving gifts? You know, it's interesting, in ancient paganism, uh, the pagans located their gods in our world by making images of them. We saw that actually last week when we looked at Acts 17. And as Paul traveled through Athens, he saw the city was full of idols. Why did the pagans make idols? In essence, they were dragging their gods to earth and putting faces on their gods by making physical idols. They had to have a god they could see. They couldn't worship by faith. It had to be by sight. And so their gods were uh, identified with these physical things, these physical objects. The medieval church had also fallen into a kind of idolatry so that God was sought after by traveling to special places, making pilgrimages to Rome or to Judea. Or God was found in special objects like the relics I've already mentioned or icons. God was tied to places and objects. And that was a problem because these were not God's appointed places or God's appointed means. Today, I would suggest, we tend to have the opposite problem. We've gone to the opposite extreme. And so modern American Christians don't make up physical idols. We don't craft idols for ourselves in that way. In fact, we tend to think God is so spiritual, He cannot be found in any physical thing. The physical cannot contain the spiritual, or so we think. And so for us, in our culture, seeking after God becomes a very abstract thing. Or a very introspective thing. We don't turn to outward idols. Rather we turn inward. And we seek to find God in impressions. And in experiences. And in feelings. But this turn inward is just as deadly. It's just as, as deadly as seeking God outwardly in the wrong material objects. This turn inward doesn't do us any good. There's no spark of divinity within each one of us. There's only darkness inside of us if we are left to ourselves. What the Reformers do for us by opening up the Scriptures for us is they give us a better way, a more biblical way of understanding how God is present with us, how we may seek after and find Him. I've got a Lutheran friend uh, who once told me the essence of Lutheranism is this. He said, a Lutheran is someone who will not only tell you about Jesus, but who will show you where to find him. And I think that's right. And I think that's also uh, something that can be said of Calvinists and of classic Presbyterians. How does God come to us? God comes to us in his appointed means, which actually are very earthy and very simple and very easy to find. God comes to us through things He has made and appointed for this purpose. 
I think we can best understand this if we really just start with the Bible's teaching on creation in general. We start with creation. God made the world and God made it good. And so God's not allergic to matter. God's not afraid to get his hands dirty. That's what we find God doing in the beginning. Getting his hands in the dirt to make man out of the dust of the earth. As C.S. Lewis said, of course God likes matter. He invented it. Uh, God's not allergic to matter. He's not afraid of touching. He's not afraid of getting his hands dirty. And of course we can go further. We move from creation to incarnation. Uh, we see that in the incarnation when God becomes man... We see that God has bound himself to matter forever. God has bound himself to a body, a particular human body for all eternity. In the incarnation, in the birth of Jesus, this is the miracle. The creator of matter becomes matter. The one who made matter enters into matter. God unites himself to his physical creation in order to redeem it. After his death and resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. His disciples witnessed this. He ascended into heaven in the body. And they tell us he is now seated at God's right hand. And so the question is now that Jesus has gone to heaven, where do we find him? Where do we find Jesus on earth? And what we find is Jesus has left behind a way for his disciples to continue to know him, to continue communing with him. He's with us now. He's with us now through these means of grace. And so he speaks to us through his word, through the paper and ink of scripture and the sound waves of a preacher's voice that bounce off your eardrum and run down your auditory nerve into your brain. That's how Jesus speaks to you now. He's with us through the waters of baptism poured out for cleansing and forgiveness and renewal. And he communes with us through the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. See, the physical still contains the spiritual. We don't climb up to God on our own. Rather, God comes down to us through these means and lifts us up to himself. Now, Martin Luther once said, if you want to have God... If you want to have God, then mark where he resides and where he wants to be found. God has an address. God puts out a sign and says, here's where you can find me. I'm present when these people gather on the Lord's day. God has an address he's found in churches, multiple addresses, churches throughout the world. See, where does God want us to seek him and find him? Where does he want us to seek his face and his presence? In his word. And in the water, and in the bread and wine, he comes to us in these hidden forms, in these simple means. Luther, again, he says, God wraps himself up in the word and sacraments. And so this is how faith takes hold of God. And, 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 and then we can unwrap that gift and possess this gift by faith. As Luther explains, God has promised to meet us in these means so that we will know Christ is present with us and for us rather than against us. Through the word and sacraments, Jesus continues to do the very things he did in his earthly ministry. Consider a few examples. Jesus is continuing to do the very things he did in his earthly ministry. While Jesus was on earth, one of the things he did, which became so controversial, got him accused of blasphemy, Jesus forgave sinners. He pronounced a word of forgiveness. Well, through the word, the promise of forgiveness is still spoken to us. 
that word of forgiveness is still made audible. And so when a pastor declares absolution, as I did, when I declared, take heart, your sins are forgiven. When that kind of absolution is declared, Luther and Calvin both say that word is to be received and believed as if Jesus himself were speaking that word of promise to us. It is as if God from heaven were speaking with his own holy lips, speaking directly to you, saying, you are forgiven. Luther says the preaching of the gospel is nothing other than Christ coming to us and speaking to us. Calvin says, when the gospel is preached, it is as if God came into our midst. He says we ought to consider the word of the gospel spoken to us as if Christ spoke it by his own mouth. Christ preaches through his preachers. And so again, when I declare to you, take heart, your sins are forgiven. As far as you're concerned, that's not Rich Lusk speaking to you. That's the very voice of God. God's voice is coming through. This is one of the humbling things about being a pastor. But you need to understand, God's voice is coming through my voice. God is using my voice to declare to you His forgiveness. That forgiveness is just as sure and certain as if Jesus was on earth announcing that forgiveness to you. God's voice comes near to us through his word as these promises are proclaimed. Take another example. Another thing we find Jesus doing all throughout his earthly ministry, which also got him into a great deal of trouble. Jesus ate and drank with sinners. He ate and drank with people who were open sinners, but he invited them to fellowship and they came and they fellowshiped and feasted with him. They would join with Jesus at the table and there he would give those who gathered at the table with him a foretaste of his coming kingdom. This is the messianic banquet that the prophets had promised. Now is there any way in which Jesus continues to eat and drink with sinners today? Well, of course there is. When we take the Lord's Supper today, we are sinners who are eating with Jesus. And Jesus is just as present with us when we take the Lord's Supper as when he ate and drank with those people in the Gospels. The same thing is happening. You are having table fellowship with Jesus. You are at table with Jesus. You are communing with him and being strengthened by his presence. In fact, I would say you get something even better now. Something better than what Jesus offered when he was on earth. See, in those meals in the Gospels, they ate with Jesus. But you, you get to feast on Jesus. Jesus not only offers you to come and sit at his table to eat with him, he actually invites you to feast upon him. And so when we eat the Lord's Supper, we take into ourselves his very body and blood. And of course, we all know the rule. You become what you eat. You are what you eat. And so we eat the body of Christ to become the body of Christ. We drink his sacrifice so we can begin to live sacrificially. We drink his sacrifice to become living sacrifices. We are with Jesus and he is with us in the Lord's Supper. It's interesting, the early Christians were taunted by pagans because their God was invisible. Their God was nowhere to be found on earth. They didn't have idols or icons they set up of their God. Their God seemed to be this unseen God. And how can you worship a God you can't see? And so the pagans would taunt the Christians, where is your God? 
But the church has always given the same answer to that question. God is found where He has promised to be present through His Word and the sacraments. God gives us access to Himself. Indeed, God gives us Himself. God makes Him present and known to all who come to these means with faith and who receive them as His gifts. That's the answer. So by faith, we do know and experience the very presence of God through these means. Now let me turn from all of that to answer a few what I think are very practical and pastoral questions that arise from this. Uh, or, or questions that are related to this. A, a few, I think, very significant questions. First question is very simple. Why go to church? There are some of you who might have that uh, struggle every Sunday morning. Why get up and go to church? Why go to church on Sundays? Is it really necessary? Do I really have to have church to be a Christian? And we could frame the answer to that question in terms of law and duty. We could say, go to church because God commands it. Of course, the problem is that doesn't really make you want to go to church. Uh, that's true. God does command us to gather with his people, to not forsake the assembling of the saints together. But there's more than that to it. Uh, I think there's a deeper and really better way to look at this. Why go to church? We don't come to church just to keep a rule, just to check it off. We come to receive what we most need to get power and life and glory. You go to church for the same reason you breathe and eat. You breathe and eat to sustain your life. Just as breathing and eating sustain physical life, so the gifts that God gives to us in the ministry of the church sustain spiritual life. What are you doing when you come here? You're taking in God's Word for nourishment. You're taking in the Lord's Supper for your nourishment. We come to be nourished, to be fed, because we are hungry. Because we are starving. And here, a satisfying meal can be found that will nourish us and sustain us for the challenges of the week to come. Again, it is true. God can always work when and how He pleases. God can do what He wants. But look at what God has promised. God has promised to meet us here. He's promised to meet us in this gathering, to give us life and forgiveness and wisdom and truth in the context of the assembly of the saints, in the context of the church. Simply put, the church is the ordinary place of salvation. The Christian life is an ecclesial life. It is a churchly life. A life lived in the context and lived out of the context of the church. And so just to give you an example of this in Scripture in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit's been poured out at Pentecost. Peter preaches his sermon. 3,000 get baptized in one day. And so towards the end of the chapter, it describes these new believers coming into the church, and it says the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. To be added to the church and to be saved were just two sides of the same coin. Now, don't become presumptuous. That doesn't mean that just showing up on a Sunday morning automatically guarantees you salvation. It doesn't mean everyone in the church is automatically saved. We know there are hypocrites and false teachers in the church. But this does mean that church and salvation ordinarily go together. Ordinarily, God saves people by incorporating them into the life of the church community. Martin Luther puts it this way. He says, not a pope or an angel from heaven can give you more than God does in your local parish church. 
He says, he who would find Christ, that's what this is all about, finding Christ, right? Where do we find Christ? He who would find Christ must first of all find the church. How would one know where Christ and his faith were if one did not know where his church is? And he who would know something of Christ must not trust himself or build his own bridges into heaven through his own reason, but he must go to the church, visit and ask of the same. For outside of the church is no truth, no Christ, no salvation. The holy Christian church is the principal work of God for the sake of which all things were made. In the church, great wonders daily occur, such as the forgiveness of sins, triumph over death, the gift of righteousness and eternal life. The church is a place where God daily does great wonders. John Calvin says the same thing. He says the church is our mother, and he echoes the, 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 the church fathers, the earliest Christians. He says you cannot have God for your father unless you have the church as your mother. And then he says we learn from this simple title, Mother, how useful indeed, how necessary it is that we should know her. For there is no other way. There's no detour you can take around. There's no other pathway. There is no other way to enter into life unless this mother conceive us in her womb, give us birth, nourish us, and lastly, unless she keep us under her care and guidance all our days. He says our weakness does not allow us to be dismissed from her school until we have been her pupils all our lives. Furthermore, away from her, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins or any salvation. Therefore, he says, it is always disastrous to leave the church. This is how God works. This is where God works. God works in the context of the assembly. Jesus said, wherever two or three gather together. So that's a church. Jesus said, there I am. There I will be in the midst of them. God works outside in. Salvation comes from the outside in. The gospel comes from outside of us, from beyond us. You can't get it by looking inward. You've got to look outward to those places where God has put his gospel. We're never going to find salvation by turning inward. Faith clings to the promise that is outside of me. So what is the church? Yeah, we define the church as a people. The church is the communion of the saints. It's the community of God's people. That certainly is what the church is all about. But church is also an event. It's when we come together as the church, as the disciples of Christ. This is where he is supremely present to give us himself and his gifts. This is where we encounter the living God and his living word. This is where we feast upon the body broken and the blood poured out for sinners. And indeed, this is what the liturgy is all about. We call it really the divine service. The liturgy is not about our service to God so much as God's service to us. The liturgy is there not just so we can express our thanks and praise. It's not merely expressive. It is formative. And God is the main actor in it. And God works through the words and the patterns of the liturgy to form us and shape us into the kind of people he wants us to be. Liturgy is about discipleship. But there's a second question that comes up here. And the question is this. If salvation comes through the church... Doesn't that in some way make salvation dependent on us? Doesn't it make salvation dependent on man in some way? And doesn't that then steal glory from God and really just throw us back on ourselves and make us dependent on ourselves? 
And the answer here is no. Because even though word and sacraments involve certain created things, and even though humans and human actions are involved, these are really the works of God. And this is really so key because this has been lost in the church today. So many in the church today see the sacraments as human works, rituals that we do, and nothing more. And so baptism, for many, becomes the way I profess my faith. And I show God that I mean business by getting baptized. And the Lord's Supper is how I remember. I conjure up thoughts about Jesus as I take the Lord's Supper. And so it's my, my remembrance that is really the key. See, on that view, it's my faith, my remembering, my working that makes the sacraments work, that makes them what they are. But that just makes the sacraments law rather than gospel. That makes the sacraments legalistic duties rather than gracious gifts. See, the sacraments are God's work. They're God's instruments. They're God's gospel. They're God's gifts. So interesting how Martin Luther deals with this. Luther lists all the benefits given to us in baptism, forgiveness of sins, how God works forgiveness and, and, and the new birth and adoption in baptism. And then he asks the question, how can water do such wonders? How can all these amazing things happen through the water, the forgiveness of sins and the granting of new life in the Spirit? And then he says it's not the water. It is God's Word and power with the water working through the water. In other words, baptism is not just water. It's water and spirit. Water and word. Water and the blood of Christ. It's Christ working by His Spirit through the water according to His Word to do these wonders. And to doubt that, to doubt that these things happen in baptism is simply unbelief. Because God says it in His Word again and again and again. He makes it plain. He acts and He works in baptism. Indeed, God acting in this way through means is really, I don't think it's that hard to actually grasp. Because I think we have analogies of it in other areas of life. Think about a wedding ceremony. What happens in a wedding? A pastor says a few words. A man and a woman make promises to one another. They exchange rings. They kiss. And then what declaration does the pastor make? In the Christian wedding liturgy, the pastor makes a declaration that comes straight off the lips of Jesus in Mark chapter 10, the officiant will say, What God has joined together, let not man separate. What God has joined together. See, who forms the marriage bond? Who creates the marriage covenant between the husband and the wife? God does. Now, yes, He does it through a series of human actions. But God is the one who creates the bond between them, making them husband and wife. God works through the ceremony. Now think about this. If God can work in that effectual way through a wedding ceremony, when marriage is not a sacrament, how much more can He work through baptism, which is a sacrament? See, what happens in baptism, God creates a marriage. God creates a bond. God creates a relationship. In baptism, God unites Christ and the one baptized. So now you're inserted into Christ's life and Christ's story. And you have a new identity that's found in Christ. Now certainly following that, it's just like in a marriage, to enjoy all the benefits of this baptismal covenant, you've got to live faithful to your husband and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to be loyal to Him. You've got to be faithful to Him. You've got to trust Him and obey Him. You've got to be a covenant keeper. 
So all those things follow. But there's no question that God has worked in your baptism. That God has given you this gift of union with Christ in your baptism. And your job fundamentally is simply to believe what your baptism says about you. God says all these things about you in baptism. You're forgiven and you're adopted and you're reborn. And you just say amen to all of that. That is your job, your response. You are what God says you are in baptism. This is how John Calvin puts it. You'll find some of these quotes towards the back of your bulletin if you want to look at them on your own. Calvin says, we must realize that at whatever time we are baptized, we are once and for all washed and purged for our whole life. And that's why every time you sin, after you are baptized, you just run back to that promise of forgiveness and cleansing that God made to you there. And you reclaim that promise. And you know that forgiveness through the blood of Christ is yours. And that really brings us to the last question I want to ask, which was really the biggest issue in the 16th century. And really, in one sense, what you can say the whole Reformation was about, and it's this. Assurance of salvation. How can I have assurance of my salvation? How can I know I'm saved? And this is where the reformers can really help us. And their sacramental theology can really help us the most. How can I know God loves me? How can I know God forgives me? How can I know God is for me? How can I know that what Jesus did, He did for me? Now assurance is often a complicated matter. Uh, and, and there are a number of different dimensions to it I won't go into this morning. But a proper understanding of the sacraments greatly helps us. And here's where you see all of this, it's, it's so pastoral. It's not academic. It's incredibly practical and pastoral. When the word of the gospel is preached, general promises are made. Promises like this. Whosoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That's a general promise. What baptism does for us is it particularizes the promise. It puts your name inside the promise. Your name is inserted into the baptismal formula. So you know the promise is for you. You don't have to turn inward and examine yourself. You don't have to go through a process of logical reasoning. You just believe the promise made to you and rest in it. The promise made to you in your baptism. So you know you've been baptized into God. That God has made you His own His own in baptism. You've been baptized into the Father, Son, and Spirit. See, and Luther puts it this way. It's as if God wraps up the gift of Christ in baptism and then puts your name on the package. And you tear into that package and you own that package and it's yours by faith. See, your name is put in that promise, in that formula for baptism. And that's how you know the promise is for you in particular. Not just people in general, but for you specifically. All too often in the church today, people try to pin assurance on some kind of experience. Usually a conversion experience of some kind. But that is especially damaging to covenant children, baptized in infancy, who grow up and most of the time don't have some kind of dramatic conversion experience because they grow up under the Christian nurture of their parents and the church. Think here about Luther's Tower experience again. You know, for many modern Christians, assurance would have been pinned on that crisis experience Luther had in the Tower. But that's not what Luther does. See, the problem with pinning assurance to 
an experience is that your feelings about that experience are going to fluctuate. They're going to rise and fall. Your memory of that experience can fade. And so what did Luther himself do when he was assailed by doubts, when Satan tempted him to doubt his salvation and doubt his forgiveness? Luther did not point himself back to that tower experience. He didn't point back to the tower. He pointed to his baptism to the baptismal font. And he tells us, as he would continually remind himself whenever he was struck by doubts, I have been baptized. He would say, Martin, you have been baptized. And that's how he would drive away these satanic temptations to doubt his salvation. Whenever Satan would remind him of his sins, he would remind himself of his baptism. And it's really the same with the Lord's Supper. Think of the words Jesus uses at the table. He says, this is my body given for you. He says, this cup is the cup of the new covenant for you. My blood shed for the remission of your sins. It's a promise spoken directly to you. The for you-ness of the gospel is found at the table. At the table, he gives himself to us particularly. Individually, as we take the, the, the body and the blood, as, as we enjoy his flesh and his blood as our feast. And we know all the benefits he won for us on the cross, all those blessings he won for us are ours. The table assures us. Don't make your assurance a matter of feelings. Feelings rise and fall. They come and go. This is an assurance based on God's rock-solid, unchangeable promises. Promises given to us tangibly at the table. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Luther says at the table, God distributes himself to us. He says, this is for you. Come and take what is yours. And Calvin puts it this way. He says, let us never forget the infinite goodness of our Savior who spreads out all his riches and blessings at this table to give them to us. For in giving us himself, he testifies that all he has is ours. If you want to know God and know that you know God, you have come to the right place. For God is here among us at this very moment speaking to us working in our midst. And all he asks of you is to trust him. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you give us Christ Jesus in your word, in baptism, and at the table. For we know our whole salvation is wrapped up in him. So may we trust him. May we rest in him. May we be loyal to him all our days by living faithfully as your people, your church, your new covenant community. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.